Good morning. My name is Julie Clark. Today's reading is 1 Samuel chapter 18. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet Saul king, and tambour with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand, and he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all of his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Then Saul said to David, here is my elder daughter, Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at that time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Maholathite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David, and they told Saul the thing that pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul, commander his servants, Speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delighted in you, and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ear of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, 
The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged for the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law before the time had expired. David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistine. And David brought their foreskin, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael's Saul's daughter loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. The word pandemic has become a uh, common vocabulary word that even our youngest children now know. And I want to talk about a pandemic today, but it has nothing to do with that weird feeling you just felt when I said the word pandemic. It's nothing to do with COVID or vaccines or social distancing. Well, maybe a little bit of social distancing. It has to do with a pandemic in regard to loneliness. It is now statistically argued that cultures in the modern West are dealing with a loneliness pandemic. In fact, in 2018, so just a few years ago, the British Prime Minister appointed a minister of loneliness. Now again, minister doesn't mean pastor. It means like we would use like secretary of defense or secretary of loneliness. What a weird governmental position. Because it was believed that it was so severe that in some way the government may need to think this through. Again, don't think of the government fixing it, but how do we do zoning? How do we design workplaces? How do we have locations, streets, sidewalks, lights, accessibility to things to facilitate human engagement? Because it's become a pandemic. It's not just in the UK. A Fox News article in March of 2019 even described how the way we have disengaged with people is changing church. The article in this Fox News article was called, Church as We Know It Is Over. That's a bit of clickbait, but fair enough. It compares what it calls a location-centric model, which is what we're doing right now, where we all come from our distant homes or places of residence to come to one place to gather. So it, it talks about this shift from a location-centric model to an audience-centric model, where we send it out to you. We don't even need to gather. Remember that other pandemic, which shall not be named? Remember that when you're sitting in your living room? with your coffee and pajamas and you're watching church online, this article argues that is the way of the future. Well, that's the way of the present. In a well-known book written about 20 years ago with a great title called Bowling Alone, Robert Putnam assessed 
the social isolation of this current pandemic. He looked at the last 50 years, so basically from 1950 to 2000, to show a massive decrease in social activities, hence the title Bowling Alone. For everything from clubs, activities, extracurriculars, all of these kind of activities that were booming following World War II have just slowly decreased in the 60s, so, I mean, he charts it in almost every area, every social economic, from city to country, there has been this radical decrease. Even the way we design our homes, instead of the front porch, it's the backyard. Near the end of this book, he assessed the situation and says this. He speaks about social interaction as a capital, almost like economy, right? He, he says, Weakened social capital is manifest in the things that have vanished almost unnoticed. Things that you, you, you almost forget about, you just don't see anymore. Neighborhood parties, get-togethers with friends, the unreflective kindness of strangers, the shared pursuit of the public good rather than a solitary quest for private goods. He offers several solutions, three of which I'll just mention briefly. He says that we need to push more for civic engagement. He, he, he lists things like electoral turnout, extracurriculars, community service programs, that we should be pursuing and participating in those things. He argues that we should push for more family-friendly and community-friendly workplaces to try to facilitate the kind of interaction. Again, this is pre the other pandemic, when now you're just going to work from home. Again, not an all bad thing, but with everything, there are consequences. He also talks about a push for more pedestrian-friendly areas, better zoning, town centers, creative use of space. I never saw that distinction until I lived in the UK when it's a town founded how many centuries before America existed. When there was a town center and you didn't, most people didn't have cars and everything was in walking distance. And when, when you have to go into your garage, open the garage, back out and drive to your location, your social interaction is completely up to what you allow. But when you have to walk three-quarters of a mile, past several friends and neighborhoods, down certain streets, along a sidewalk and corner, through several shops, even the MJ Smellis cheese shop, and it was smelly, all right, and storekeepers coming out and co-workers standing there, it's a whole different experience when you're just going to get some milk. I mean, now you can go in your car, to a shop, you can actually have, if you want, them bring it out to your trunk. So you don't even have to talk to anybody. Or if you do go in the store, keep your head down and there's self-checkout. So you don't even have to have that little courtesy of, how you doing? Good to see you. All of this recent concern is based on the growing realization that we are becoming less human. It's just slow. 
We don't realize it. Like that sickness that is discovered in a person that they've actually maybe had for a long time, and they kind of weren't feeling well, but they didn't notice the little changes. But when they look back over time, they realize, man, something's happening in my body that now is undeniable. There's something happening in the body of humanity that is undeniable. And for all the benefits and advances of technology, of being able to get in a plane this afternoon and fly across the country or across the world, but interconnection, that's beautiful, it comes with some serious side effects. It's changed where you live with zoning laws and how you live and how you get to where you're going to go. And all of a sudden, before it's too late, you don't even know your neighbors. And you've isolated yourself in work, not necessarily do your own doing, but just the way of the system. And everything is self-checkout, drive-through, and all these modern conveniences that seem great on the back or on the time, but when it comes to being human, something's missing. There's a growing realization we're becoming less human. And if I were to state it more simply, we'd, we could say that we are losing our grip on the bond of human friendship. Our text today gives us a contrast in relationships. And I, I, as Vera rightly said, there's a lot we could have talked about in this text. Again, it, it, it spends most of its time looking at Saul and his selfishness. But the beginning of this text, if you, if you listen to what Julie read for us, those first few verses focused on Jonathan. And the text is wanting this contrast. It gives you four verses of this ridiculously crazy, other-centered, sacrificial, human bond of friendship that is so radical that I'm not even sure we can handle the words it uses to describe the love between a man and his friend. In fact, to be honest with you, I'm, a, I'm assuming most of us will look at those words and feel uncomfortable with that language because we are in an overly sexualized culture. There's nothing sexual about that language. That is the love of brothers, or equally so, sisters. And it's palpable in this text. And then the rest of this, which I'm not going to spend any time, I'm not going to spend any time on the negative. I'll, I'll just summarize it, is the reverse. The, the, the father of Jonathan, Saul, actually, when he looks at David, rather than having this self-sacrificial self, otherness, it is complete selfishness. Everything he does is try to take from David or to position himself so that he's in a prime position. Saul is jealous of David. Jonathan is jealous for David. He wants time with him. Saul views David as a competitor. Jonathan views David as a companion. Saul keeps his enemy close and even gives gifts, his own daughter, so as to manipulate him to do what he wants. Jonathan gives out of love and sacrifice. Saul displays self-love, and Jonathan displays what it means to love one another. Now, the, the, the text shows this. If we, we were to even take a glimpse, verse 8, you see the selfishness of Saul when he sees David having benefit. In, in verse 
15, the comparison and competition between Saul and David. By verse 21, he's using David. Gives him his daughter and says, quote, verse 21, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. I mean, look at this. That, that, that's self-love. By the time you get to verse 25 and verse 29, not only is Saul looking at David as an enemy, but he wants him dead. Now look at verses 1 to 4. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, get this language, get this. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. What does that even mean? We'll probably spend lifetime figuring out what it means to truly love another person, like love them. Obviously, there's gain that's reciprocated. There's, there's mutual benefit. But what does it mean to truly, sacrificially love somebody that you want ultimately what is in their best interest and, and you enjoy their presence? The soul of David was, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. That isn't asking actually something that should be that alien to us. What is the command of our Lord? Love your neighbor as yourself. Like this should be a, I mean, Jesus only commands that. God only expects that if this should be the norm. But that assumes that we aren't so in love with ourselves and hoarding for ourselves, and self-interested, that we actually have some capital left to extend that love to another. Verse 3, then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Our culture, brothers and sisters, faces a famine of friendship. And I just want to spend a few minutes this morning looking at the traits and truths of true Christian friendship. Pray with me before we look at the details of this text. Father, open our eyes that we may see the wondrous things of your word and help these truths to penetrate not just into our minds that we like an abstract topic, but into our lives. And we are in a pandemic when social distancing is far from merely medical. It has become our reality. We are socially distant, relationally distant, humanly distant. And we're asking, Father, that in the church, that in breaking of your kingdom that it look different. So help us to learn from your word today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. From this text, I think there are four distinct marks of what, what I'd like to call Christian friendship, and, I, and I'll get to that, but generally just friendship. Here's the first, and this is coming from verse one. Christian friendship involves deep affection. 
That's an older word. We don't use affection language. That's a good word. Verse 1 makes clear that Jonathan had witnessed some or all of David's actions, and he was impressed. He saw courage, compassion, humility, whatever it is the text doesn't tell us. In fact, you're going to notice the text doesn't explain all the why questions. It, it looks at how. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't explain why they bonded and what brought them together. They both like tennis, or they both played video games. It doesn't tell us that. The only thing it's going to show is how this mutual commitment reflected itself to one another so that we can learn what it looks like. But he was, Jonathan was more than impressed. He was drawn to David in a way that's described in some of the most powerful language of friendship in the Bible. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Some translations... This is an idiom, an expression. Some translations even frame it, they became one in spirit, or their lives were bound together. Now many interpreters in the modern era, this was never stated until recent years, many modern interpreters have tried to interpret this as homosexual love. But nothing in this passage or any others around it leads to this conclusion. And remember what I said, even more in a culture that lacks this kind of love and friendship, like it's totally bare, it's rare. And that is plagued with hypersexualized and romanticized love. To be honest, we shouldn't be surprised that that's how they see this, because they know nothing else. This is not sexualized love. This is just simply love of one another. It is the opposite of self-love. It is giving of oneself and craving the relationship and the bond and the friendship of another. And again, we, you have to understand, we're, we're all coming in bruised in this capacity and probably unskilled. Like you think of a student being tested if they're transferring to a new school, like what's the reading level and math level? Probably relationally, all of us in modern, wealthy, individualistic, the most individualistic culture in world history up to this point, we would be at the high school level reading like first graders, right? So think about that. Like relationally, we are like infants when it comes to having these bonds and having these deep friendships and knowing what this looks like. We don't even know how to translate it, so we just see something like that and think it's sexual, because that's the only category that floods our minds. How foreign is this kind of bond of friendship in so much of our interaction today? Let, let me give the example of adult males. But among adult males, it can almost feel not that much different than junior high PE locker rooms filled with sarcasm and verbal jabs. Such actions caused us to get hardened, to strike first so as to protect ourselves and not be vulnerable. Like the junior high boy going into PE. You got your defenses up. Some older student's going to say something about your shirt or about your shoes or about your nose or about your glasses or about your gut. They're going to say something and you just learn from an early age, strike first. Guard yourself. Be, the, be quick-witted. All that does is put force fields between us. We live in a roasting culture. 
that is constantly at war with verbal slams and slaps. Sarcasm is now our love language. Even the news that is booming in popularity is sarcastic news. It's ripping on that politician and that politician and that politician, just depending on what source you're getting. It's ripping, putting down, putting down, putting down. It's not love. It's not appreciation. It's not compassion. It's not humility. It's self-love and self-interest. That catechizes us. We talk the same way. All of these actions are self-love, either through self-protection or self-promotion. And that's going to be the default. Most of us are either going to feel this instinctive urge to self-protect or self-promote. We can't just let us be giving to another without worry or risk. To love one another is to see a person's God-given goodness and beauty and to share the fullness of one's life with them. This kind of love bears the mark of family, by the way, which is why the love one another commands in the New Testament are connected to the church. Because what are you in the church? Brothers and sisters, with whom you can have some serious disagreements, arguments, wrestling matches. All those has happened probably this week in my own house. But yet when it comes down to it, nobody's going to mess with your brother or sister. And you need them and you know it. And if they need you, you are there for them. You feel this bond. Even though there can be the conflict and the need for compromise, there is a connection that is so deep and real. It's palpable. And you want to see your siblings. And you love them. And that what happens beautifully, if done rightly, in a biological family is supposed to be overflowing in the church. Love involves a compassionate attachment and devotion to a person. So, to use maybe the best test case, the men in the room. Not that our sisters don't struggle with this. But statistically speaking, men will be the most isolated. They will be the least willing to be vulnerable. Maybe, brothers, you have trouble being vulnerable with your own spouse. Maybe you have trouble being vulnerable with your own kids. In our world today, this kind of love is either viewed as homosexual or unmanly. Let me tell you, David wasn't very unmanly. This young boy, what, 12 maybe, stood in front of a behemoth of a man just a couple chapters ago, stood there and knowing he had no natural ability to do anything, completely radical faith, trusted in his covenant God to defend him with a shepherd's pouch and a few stones from the creek against a man who was a champion at killing grown master fighters. Would you call that unmanly? But in our world, this kind of love is viewed as homosexual or unmanly. If there's no wings or an MMA match, I'm not sure it fits. Men, it will require you to be man enough 
The kind of friendship this text is pointing to requires you to be man enough not to self-protect and not to self-promote. You have to walk into that hypothetical junior high locker room and not be afraid for the rips to come. Because if you're dealing with immature men, they will rip. They will pick on your shirt or pick on your job or pick on your car, and you will feel that innate instinct to defend by rip back or promote. And it will require you to put your shields down and say, I know who I am and who I want to be, and that is not it. Christian friendship involves deep affection. Second, Christian friendship involves serious commitment. Verse 3 is interesting language. Normally we see covenant language regarding, at least in human relationships, between God and humanity, or between a husband and a wife. But covenant gets used between nations and corporate people groups, and here it's being used between individuals. Jonathan does not view love as a feeling, but grounds, but as the grounds of a tangible expression of relationship. Verse 3 says, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. There's that same phrase again. The language of covenant makes clear that Jonathan is making a commitment to David. This is not the act of an acquaintance at school or a colleague at work. This is the language or an act of a person who becomes part of your life. This is family language. While covenant language can be used to explain a marriage relationship, it also reflects the formal realities of friendship. A long-term commitment to be in an intentional, familial relationship with a person. Again, think sibling. Such relationships may form around common interests, but they are likely broader than a quid pro quo. Just as your love of a sibling goes beyond common affiliations. Well, I really don't like my brother, but we both love the bears. No, no, it's more than that. It's more than just that you're affiliated together. Again, this language of covenant explains much of the commands of Jesus that he gives to the church. Committed bonds, mutual support, encouragement, and rebuke. This is the fulfillment of the command to love one another. This is why the church has actually in the past used things like church covenants. And they can be unhealthy and abused, but the language at least fits something like that expectation the Bible gives that I'm going to love you and you're going to love me and it's going to come at a cost. And maybe we don't have to write down a covenant or sign a covenant, but covenantally we are bonded together and there should be teeth in that. That the Lord says, love them as yourself. Committed relationships should become commonplace at church where we all share a common interest in Christ and are all covenanted together as the people of God. Again, here's the, mem- the benefit of something like church membership. It's not just a union card. Hey, I get to teach in the nursery now, which feel free to go teach in the nursery. But it's me saying, I commit myself to you. And praise be to God, you commit yourself to me. And I think that's so important that membership is this discipleship mechanism where we live in accountability together. Or the value of small groups, where I just, you, we, we don't just want the big 
corporate room, like lecture hall. We, we need living room and kitchen time, kitchen around the kitchen counter with coffee or hot chocolate time with our brothers and sisters where we get to know each other. And all the organic relations that, Lord willing, happen even as you were coming in today or will happen the moment the service ends. Think, think about that for a second. If it's accurate that there is a pandemic of loneliness, then there is a good chance that there are scores of people coming in this building every single Sunday that are craving human touch. You should feel this huge amount of empathy for any brothers and sisters in Christ who literally haven't been hugged in a long time who literally don't have somebody to have a meal with them, who they don't know who to ask for help. You should be so broken over that because I tell you, Christ was in this church. He would be looking for those people. Third, Christian friendship involves sacrificial giving. Jonathan performs probably a formal act by the giving of these likely symbolic gifts in verse 4, this is probably a reflection of him accepting David as king, which is a bold move in light of the fact that he is the son of Saul, but also a reflective move that he is a child of God. And he knows the one who God has assigned. Friendship that is real, brothers and sisters, requires sacrificial giving by both parties. Uh, by the way, you could almost say that in a marriage. Here we go. Ready? Marriage requires sacrificial giving. Imagine the couples in this room married a long, long time who would say to Kurt and Lauren Pazdra, who are about to get married a week from today, would you say, hey, by the way, sacrificial giving. Get ready for it. That's true with friendship. Listen to the words of Jesus as he talks about not marriage, not, not look at, he doesn't say this about country, he doesn't say this about your wife or your husband, he doesn't say this about your children, he says this about friendship. Listen to this, John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down their life for their friend. Did you hear that? He didn't say lay your life down for your country, though that is a valuable thing to do and worthy. He didn't say lay your life down for your spouse. He didn't say lay your life down for your son. Did you hear what he said? He said for your friend. To lay down your life is the ultimate act of friendship. And if we're being honest and thinking about it with a bit of metaphor involved, friendship is always an act of laying down, giving of something, sacrificing. Friendship is not love of self. It is love of other. So Christian friendship involves three things in this text. It involves deep affection, verse 1. It involves serious commitment, verse 3. It involves sacrificial giving, verse 4. And I add a fourth, because it's not just in this verse, but in the whole Bible. Christian friendship is perfectly modeled by Christ. And we've seen this before. Remember, we've already seen like symbolism of David becoming king, and there were so many images to Christ, and the shepherd's pouch when David went out to fight Goliath, like all these little glimpses of Christ, and you want to see a beautiful image of Christ, you look at Christian friendship. Christ is the model of friendship. Christ loves us unconditionally. He covenanted with us, 
and he gave sacrificially to us. And remember what Jesus said in John 15, 13? Greater love is no one than this, that someone lay down their life for their friend. Jesus has already done it. It is not a stretch to say that only Christians, and I, I, I believe this, I wonder if this is true, but believe it so, it's not a stretch to say that only Christians have the full capacity for true friendship. Because we've already been given so much, we no longer need to self-protect or self-promote. We have the capacity to give sacrificially because we've been given for sacrificially. True friendship or friendship that is Christian is ultimately a symptom of the power of the gospel. So it's not surprising in a locker room when the gospel is not overflowing that you would have to be on guard. But you would hope when you come into the church that there is love and sacrifice and long-term commitment between siblings. This truth, though, brothers and sisters, makes it hard to understand why there was so much strife between Christians during that other pandemic. But it also gives us a goal for which to strive. True love, true commitment, true sacrifice. So, what can we take from this? Well, let me ask you a question. What do your friendships look like? Who are the people in your life for whom you have deep affection? Non-biological. You're going to love your kids or grandkids. Well done. Good. How about those that give you nothing in return? To whom technically you're indebted in no way. Who are the people in your life for whom you have deep affection? With whom you have made a serious relational commitment and to whom you have sacrificially given and vice versa. They've given to you. Men, do you have a non-biological brother that you love in this way? That you're vulnerable with? Women, can you confidently say that you have a non-biological sister with whom you are intentionally committed? Again, real friendships through thick and thin, the good and the bad seasons. If this is an area of growth for you, let me recommend a few action steps. First, learn this truth. Learn this. This is, this is biblical truth. You were designed by God for deep, life-giving, and long-term human relationships. You were designed by God for deep, life-giving, and long-term human relationships. If you don't have that, you've got kind of a form of cancer in your own humanity and human relations. Second, a test. Does your life betray a love imbalance? Think of like too much bad cholesterol, not enough good cholesterol. Does your life betray a good imbalance? Too much love of self and not enough love of others. Like just, that'd be a good test to think about this week. Do you have a, a love imbalance, like a cholesterol imbalance in your life system? Too much love of self and not enough love of others. And finally, a task. After evaluating whether you are in a healthy relationship, by the way, feel free to just ask your spouse, she or he will tell you. Or maybe ask a friend. I'm talking about vulnerable. Are we good friends? 
um, um, with the football game on, uh, are we knit to each other? Like, what, the awkward conversation, right? Maybe you read 1 Samuel 18. I'd like to read you a verse. My soul is knit to yours. I love you as my own soul. We laugh because that feels so weird. And maybe we wouldn't use ancient biblical language, but I hope the ethos is real. After evaluating whether you, here's the test, after evaluating whether you are in a healthy relationship, take the necessary steps to be the kind of friend and have the kind of friend that reflects true Christian friendship. Like let the, like these marks of friendship, the, this meaningfulness of friendship, be what you use to evaluate whether you are that kind of a friend to someone and someone is that kind of friend to you. And if this is a pandemic, which I think it is, we've got a lot of growing to do. And the best place to practice and blossom friendship is with people who are already knitted to you through Christ in your local church, your brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Father, we want to be a people that know you and love you, but we also don't think that that ends with you. We want to be a people that know and love others and are known and loved by others. Thank you, Jesus Christ, for being a deep, life-giving, and long-term friend to we, your brothers and sisters, the children of God. But we ask that in this pandemic, with intentional, uninhibited social distancing, relational distancing, technological distancing, that you would help us have true Christian friendship that reflects not just what existed between Jonathan and David, but what you command your children to do and to live as brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we know this is a long-term work and, a, and needs the power of your Spirit and, and the flowing truths of the gospel but we ask, Father, that you would facilitate that among us so that in this place, in this building, in living rooms and coffee counters around the state line area, all of those who are lonely would know they have a friend who loves them, who is committed to them, that they are not alone. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.